Dr. Bloom is a professor in both the College of Arts and Sciences and the School of Medicine. Dr. Bloom's career originally focused on fundamental cell biological questions, most notably how mammalian cells move and change shape and transport cellular building blocks from place to place within the cell. More recently, this basic science approach led directly to more clinically relevant research on Alzheimer's disease, which is now the dominant theme in his lab. He has authored more than 80 scientific papers and is currently an associate editor for the journal Cytoskeleton. His lab has been supported by grants from the NIH, the Owens Family Foundation, the Alzheimer's Association, the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, and the American Cancer Society, among other funding agencies. Please welcome Dr. George Bloom. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me okay? Welcome back to Grounds. Uh, here it is uh, midway through, almost midway through 2019, and we are in the middle of, a, of, of a, an epidemic of Alzheimer's disease. This disease was first described in 1906 by a German psychiatrist, Alois Alzheimer, who uh, had a patient, young, fairly young woman in her 50s named August Dieter, who uh, a few years later died of this syndrome that he then called Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but we can't do anything more today to help patients than we could back in 1906. And so what I'd like to accomplished today is to uh, explain why we're at that position, what it's going to take to change, what it's going to take to make progress. And so to that end, I'm going to divide my talk into four parts. Uh, first, the socioeconomic impact of Alzheimer's disease, which as you'll see is very substantial. Um, going to talk a little bit about the basic biology of the disease, because if, if, if you're keen to understand why we don't have any prevention or cure yet, uh, it'll really help to go over a little bit of the basic biology. Then I'm going to talk about some clinical advances, uh, both past, present, and future, and I'll, I'll wrap up by telling you about some of the things that we're doing in my lab. So let's begin with the socioeconomic impact of Alzheimer's disease. It is arguably the most pressing medical crisis in the United States, if not the world. Um, according to the New England Journal of Medicine, about six years ago, in 2013, Alzheimer's disease became the most expensive disease in the U.S. That's uh, the sum of what it actually costs in healthcare dollars as well as lost wages for caretakers. And so by applying those same criteria to other major diseases, Alzheimer's disease is even more expensive these days than cancer and cardiovascular disease. Cost society, American society, about $277 billion in 2018. Uh, this year, that will rise to close to $300 billion. And by the middle of the century, um, more than a trillion dollars if we can't make any advances. And, and, and this $1.1 trillion estimate is in 2018 dollars, doesn't even take into account inflation. Right now, nearly 6 million Americans uh, have Alzheimer's disease. And again, if we can't make any serious advances in the fairly near future, that number could rise up to threefold by the middle of the century. Uh, and bankrupt our healthcare system long before then. The greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease by far is age. So if you want to avoid getting Alzheimer's disease, there's one simple answer, die young. That's not my recommendation, however. <laughs> um, the risk for becoming symptomatic of Alzheimer's disease lies, uh, rises logarithmically with age. So for most people, it's pretty close to zero until about age 60 or 65, and then it starts rising. But because this is, is a logarithmic function, by the time one would be 85 years old, the chances of being symptomatic at that point are about 50%. Uh, there are, of course, other 
uh, risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, most notably head injuries, uh, particularly those that occur most frequently in impact sports like football and hockey. Uh, but any kind of impact, and it could be just one impact, it could be a series of impacts. Uh, it varies a lot from individual to individual, but that can really increase dramatically your risk of becoming symptomatic eventually for Alzheimer's disease. So let's move on now to the basic biology. Um, what you're looking at here is a, uh, a, a thin slice of a human brain uh, taken from a patient who passed away from Alzheimer's disease. And this slide illustrates the two histological landmarks of Alzheimer's disease. Amyloid plaques, which is this sort of fuzzy orange thing that you see here in the middle and you see other plaques elsewhere, and neurofibrillary tangles, which are these very dark, darkly stained structures and often surround a core plaque like you see right here. Now, the plaques are made out of uh, a little piece of a protein. For those of you who may have been biology majors or took biology back in the day, uh, we call these pieces of, of, uh, of a larger protein peptides. So these are the amyloid beta peptides that get together to form the plaques. And the plaques are found extracellularly. They're found outside of the cells in the brains, in the space between neurons and other types of brain cells. The neurofibrillary tangles, on the other hand, are made from um, a protein called tau, as in the Greek letter. Um, this is a protein that's normally expressed only in neurons, or, or at least at, at, at decent levels, only in neurons. And the neurofibrillary tangles accumulate inside affected neurons in Alzheimer's disease. So these two histological features combined with the very well-known behavioral deficits of Alzheimer's disease collectively are the defining features of the disease. So obviously the symptoms are, are, are general cognitive decline, especially short-term memory impairment, eventually loss of older memories, uh, and a general inability to perform mental functions that that uh, people who aren't afflicted with the disease are able to accomplish with ease. And so that leads to the question of what causes the memory and cognitive loss in Alzheimer's disease? Uh, and the answer at one level is very simple. Uh, in one word, synapses. So these are connections between neurons uh, located in the brain. This is actually a picture of a live rat brain in which two neurons uh, took up a fluorescent dye. And you can see here a synapse, which is, uh, you'll notice that both of these cells have lots of processes that extend out of the cell. Uh, and uh, many of them are branched and subbranched. But each of these cells has one long, relatively unbranched process called an axon. That's like a wire that sends an, a, a signal to uh, uh, the cell that it, it communicates with. Uh, so the synapse involves cooperation between a cell that sends a signal and a cell that receives the signal, the presynaptic and postsynaptic cell. So this is the fundamental building block of the neuroanatomy that enables the brain to store information and to analyze that information. So uh, Looking at it at a more grand level, uh, in the human brain, there are approximately 100 billion neurons. And each one of those neurons typically makes somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 synapses. So we have in the human brain roughly somewhere between 100 trillion to a quadrillion total synapses. And you might think of these as being very analogous, albeit on a, on a far grander scale than the integrated circuit, the CPU, that runs the laptop that's showing you this, this, uh, this presentation and uh, is embedded in all sorts of electronic equipment these days. Uh, it's the same basic idea, connections between, uh, in, a, in a very complex circuitry that's 
orders and orders of magnitude more complex in the human brain than it is even in the most powerful computer processor. So what happens in Alzheimer's disease is that these synapses begin to fail. So they work sometimes, but not so well. And then eventually they disappear. And the neurons that make those synapses eventually die. And so it's that synapse malfunctioning and loss combined with the loss of neurons that mediate memory and cognition that account for the symptoms. You basically are losing your circuitry through loss of synapses and loss of neurons. So if we really want to understand how to defeat Alzheimer's disease once and for all, um, we really need to understand what causes synapses to fail and neurons to die. And that leads to an evaluation of what the significance of plaques and tangles is. So they don't just appear out of the clear blue sky. They actually represent the end stage of a process whereby small building blocks, individual molecules of of amyloid beta and tau, get together to form small aggregates that um, morphologically are are, are pretty indistinct. They're globular, a little irregular. But as more and more building blocks add to these aggregates, uh, the aggregates take on a filamentous form. Uh, and, and you can see just by electron microscopy here and here that the, that, that the filaments in plaques and tangles, and in both cases they're, they're bundles of tightly packed filaments, uh, they look very similar to each other. And they're very insoluble. That's what's inside the plaques and tangles. Now, until about 15 years ago, it was the prevailing wisdom was that the plaques and tangles are not only the signs of a diseased brain, but also they're somehow responsible for the symptoms. Somehow, plaques, the idea was somehow plaques and tangles cause synapses to fail and to disappear and neurons to die. But we now know, after accumulating a, a preponderance of what I consider to be incontrovertible evidence, that it's actually the building blocks of the plaques and tangles. Small oligomers of amyloid and tau, and maybe individual tau molecules that have misfolded, they they adopt an abnormal 3D shape, that are actually the most toxic elements in the context of of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And in addition, they're infectious. probably heard of mad cow disease and uh, other types of of, uh, uh, similar diseases in in other mammalian species. We call it, uh, well, in humans, there are a couple of varieties, Kuru, Kreuzfeld-Jakob disease, mad cow disease in in cattle, uh, chronic wasting disease in deer, elk, and moose. It's all the same disease, just goes by different names. And what distinguishes, what makes these diseases very interesting is that they're infectious but they're not caused by infectious DNA or RNA. Instead, the proteins themselves are infectious. So uh, one misfolded molecule that comes from a mad cow brain, if it comes into contact with another protein of the same type, it can cause that other protein to misfold and to become toxic. And the same is true of amyloid and tau and Alzheimer's disease. But the good news is, while they may infect, they may be infectious at, at the level of spreading from neuron to neuron in the brain, they are not able to be, they're not infectious uh, in terms of being passed from one person to another. Okay, um, okay. so um, why is Alzheimer's disease so challenging? Why have we not been able to do any better than what we can do right now, which is not much, just put our arms around the patient and loved ones and say, uh, you're doing everything we can to help. Well, another set of evidence, this comes from uh, epidemiological studies at many sites all over the world. It's sort of meta-analysis of data. 
has indicated that there's a very long silent phase of the disease, 20 to 30 years before a patient becomes symptomatic. The processes that are leading to synapse damage, synapse loss, and neuron death are proceeding silently. So if we consider a a, a mythical patient who died of Alzheimer's disease at age 75, uh, probably sometime when in in that person's 40s, 30 years earlier, misfolded toxic forms of amyloid and tau were starting to build up in this patient's brain. Uh, In the late 50s, neuron death started to become very prevalent. But it wasn't until age 70, five years before death, that this patient became symptomatic. And that's typical. The average, uh, uh, it's thought that once a person becomes symptomatic, the average lifespan after then is about five years. Now, of course, there are very notable exceptions. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I think, lived for a a dozen years or so after his initial diagnosis. So there's a a lot of variability, but it's still a pretty short time span. And by the time of the clinical diagnosis, five years before death, there's already massive, irreversible brain damage. Huge synapse losses and, and, and substantial amount of neuron death as well. And that just continues unabated for the next five years before the patient finally passes away. So this imposes a, a, a daunting challenge for drug development because um, typical drug trial takes two or three years. And I'm talking about the, the, the last stage There's several stages of drug trials. Phase one may involve 20 or 30 patients just to make sure the experimental drug isn't poisonous, isn't going to kill patients for whom it's intended, or or healthy patients for that matter. Uh, And then there's a series of steps of of efficacy trials, beginning with phase two and then phase three, uh, where you get fancier and fancier, more and more patients involved, Uh, And the whole idea is you want to assemble statistical data that demonstrates unequivocally that this new drug, whatever it may be, uh, is efficacious for whatever disease it's directed against. So if you're talking about an infectious disease or even things like cancer, um, these trials can be completed in a couple of years. But think about it. If we were to begin treating somebody 10 or 15 years before we expect symptoms to arise, uh, it's going to take at least that long, if not longer, to collect the data that proves or disproves whether the experimental drug is worthwhile. Now, um, that is sort of antithetical to the financial models that have been used until now to finance drug studies, uh, clinical trials. Big drug companies like Pfizer and Eli Lilly and Johnson & Johnson pour billions of dollars into into these uh, clinical trials that last just a couple of years. So if you're talking about a 10 or 15 year trial, that may cost a quarter of a billion dollars. And uh, as you'll see later, there are um, there's, there's been maybe a couple of hundred failed drug trials for Alzheimer's disease. And um, those studies have cost you know, tens of billions of dollars collectively. Uh, so these companies are, are, are very uh, skittish about investing more money uh, into drugs for Alzheimer's disease. In fact, m- many of the biggest companies that were leaders in in, in the industry in Alzheimer's drug development have dropped out in the last few years, including Pfizer um, uh, and and AstraZeneca, for example. So, but somehow or other, we're going to need to begin treating people earlier, many years before they become symptomatic, to have a chance of either preventing them from ever becoming symptomatic or slowing progression to the point that 
when they do become symptomatic, they'll be so much older than they would have been otherwise that it's not going to be nearly the problem that it is now, that you know, other, other life-threatening circumstances will be a greater danger than the Alzheimer's disease itself. So um, I, I think we need, among all sorts of other things, a new financial model for drug development in Alzheimer's disease and uh, a, a sort of consortium of public, private, and philanthropic in, um, investment to make this possible. Uh, if the drug companies have any designs of making lots of money from new Alzheimer's drugs, uh, they certainly have to, have to invest heavily in this. But I think it's unfair for them to, share, to, to, to bear the entire burden of, of, of these you know, astronomically expensive drug trials. Because after all, most of these companies whether you, are, are, are publicly held. They have an obligation to shareholders to provide dividends on a regular basis and so forth. Now, just by way of full disclosure, um, I am not a consultant for any pharmaceutical firm. Uh, so I, 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 and I know that, that the pharmaceutical industry gets a bad name very deservedly for many things that they do. But I want you to understand that uh, in this particular case, that they, as deep as their pockets are, they don't have, their pockets are not deep enough to finance this all on their own. Okay, so to enlist in a drug trial until now, in fact, um, th this is still pretty much true, a patient usually has to have a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And that means a behavioral diagnosis. And as I just told you, there's that, at that point, there's already massive irreversible brain, da uh, brain damage. Uh, alternatively, more recently, um, Patients with mild cognitive impairment have been added to clinical trials, MCI. That just means exactly what it sounds like in simple English. You're mildly cognitively impaired. Now, every case of Alzheimer's disease is preceded by a period of MCI. Could be a few years long or so. But not every case of MCI leads to Alzheimer's disease. They could be temporary conditions. They could lead to other diseases, other types of dementia besides Alzheimer's disease. So there's a risk in including MCI patients in drug trials because if they don't have, some of the patients, maybe 20, 25%, will not have Alzheimer's disease. And so if they fail to respond to an experimental drug, the investigators might incorrectly conclude that the drug isn't effective, but fail to take into account the fact that a lot of the patients in the trial didn't have Alzheimer's disease. Of course it wasn't effective. So this is, there are complexities to this drug development at every level. So the whole idea of, uh, until very, very recently, I would say until a year or two ago, uh, the conventional wisdom in the field was, let's not treat patients until they become symptomatic. Physician, do no harm. But now that we know so much about this, this pre-symptomatic period, there's been a cosmic shift in the way leading researchers in Alzheimer's disease around the world and clinicians are now regarding this situation. Uh, We've got to start treating people earlier. If we start treating them once they become symptomatic, that's like trying to stop a train wreck by applying the brakes a few seconds before impact. I mean, that's basically, in fact, that's why the vast majority of drug trials that have failed came to that sad conclusion. It's because there may be some perfectly good drugs that would work if we provided them early enough, but fail when we give them, when we start treating patients at the symptomatic stage. So what we really need urgently is better early diagnosis, disease-modifying drugs. So these are drugs that don't just 
alleviate the symptoms temporarily, but interfere with the processes that are leading to synapse decline and neuron death. And of course, it takes a lot of money to do all of this stuff. The good news is that uh, at NIH, there's been a very steady yearly increase in funding uh, beginning in about 2014. Um, uh, for example, if you submit to NIH uh, a grant application, a grant proposal to study Alzheimer's disease, about 30, 25 to 30% of those grants will get funded. But if you submit for anything else than NIH funds, the pay line, depending on exactly what you're proposing, could be anywhere from maybe 8 to 18 or 20 percent. So NIH is devoting more and more money to Alzheimer's disease research. Uh, but we, but there's, there's absolutely no question that one of the limiting factors for progress still is money. Okay, so moving on to uh, clinical advances. Um, you know, everything I've been telling you so far is pretty depressing, so let's, let's try to, you know, make it a little bit more happy. Uh, although there will be an episode or two that, that will we'll go back to the, to the uh, discouraging news. Um, so, you know, the holy grail for Alzheimer's disease is, as I just said, disease-modifying drugs. So what do we have now and what's in the pipeline? Well, right now there are five FDA-approved drugs for Alzheimer's disease, uh, and as you can see, the most recently approved one was in 2003. Uh, there's somewhere between 250 and 300 drug trials for Alzheimer's that have been completed or, in, or are in progress. Um, uh, four of these, Aricept, Razadine, Exelon, and Cognex, are all very similar pharmacologically. They work pretty much the same way, and they are Band-Aids. If they work at all, they uh, provide very modest, very temporary symptom relief for some, but by no means all, patients. And there are side effects, adverse side effects that some patients experience with these drugs. Uh, the fifth one, Momentin, is, um, is a very interesting drug. It has a completely different mode of action. And I'm going to tell you about, more about Momentin uh, later, uh, in, uh, towards the end of my talk. Uh, and the reason we're, we're, the, we're focusing on this is that, um, as you can see, it's approved only for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. But spoiler alert, we have some evidence that it may actually have potent disease-modifying properties. And I'll get back to that in a few minutes. So one of, um, one of the things that, that is sort of risen to the top in drug development is the use of extended... Uh, Patients extended, who, who are part of extended families that have a very high incidence of Alzheimer's disease caused by specific mutations. If you have any one of these mutations, you will become symptomatic for Alzheimer's disease uh, perhaps as early as your fourth decade of life, and you will die of Alzheimer's disease unless something else kills you first. So we call this familial early onset Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there's a very, there are a few studies ongoing of families like this uh, to study well, for, for clinical drug trials. And so think of it this way. We have lots of transgenic mouse models that, that sort of mimic human Alzheimer's disease. They've been genetically engineered. Mice don't get Alzheimer's disease, perhaps only because they don't live long enough, because uh, it's a very slowly developing process. But by genetically modifying them, we can, we can make them mimic human Alzheimer's disease. Um, and in those mouse strains, we know when the mice will get sick. We will know how the disease will progress. When we just take random patient samples, we don't know any of that. But if we work with families, familial early onset Alzheimer's disease, where you have maybe 20% of the participants do not have the mutations, they're the controls, and the, 80, the other 80% have the mutation, uh, we know every one of those patients will get sick. We know when they'll get sick, give or take a few years. We know how the disease will progress. So if you think about it, 
these patients actually have Alzheimer's disease from the moment of conception. It's just that it may take 35, 40 years for them to become symptomatic. But because we know with certainty who has a mutation and therefore who will get sick, we can begin treating them at any point in their life with the confidence that if we've come up with a good drug, it'll either prevent them from ever becoming symptomatic or will delay the onset of symptoms. We don't have that level of certainty with any other population. So I tell you about all of this because there's a really cool study in Columbia going on right now, and uh, uh, we'll switch to a video that describes that. Earlier this year, Channel 4 News followed this group of young Colombians as they travelled to the United States. They're taking part in the first ever trial to develop a preventative treatment of Alzheimer's disease. To answer the questions that we ask, the most important thing is you. They're so special because each of them belongs to one of several hundred families from Northern Colombia with a rare genetic mutation. Carriers of the faulty gene are destined Okay, so uh, now for, actually, it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of good news and bad news, mostly good. Um, so if we're going to treat people beginning years before they're symptomatic, how are we going to know who's at risk? Now, obviously, if you've been genotyped and you have one of these mutations that was just described uh, in the video, it's pretty easy. You, you, you know, it's black or white. You either have the mutation or you don't. If you have it, you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. If not, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But either way, you'll probably live a lot longer. Um, so how are we going to identify other people who are at risk? Well, one of them is with PET imaging for amyloid. And you can see here uh, a big difference between a normal PET scan and an abnormal PET scan, which shows where amyloid plaques are located. But you'll notice also. Uh, that uh, a person with normal cognitive function may also be positive for amyloid in a PET scan. 
So this kind of PET scan by itself is valuable. It shows who's at risk, but it's not an absolute indicator of who is symptomatic. Uh, we now have, now that these kinds of, this kind of imaging has been done for almost a decade, actually even longer than that, and we have longitudinal data for many people, uh, it now appears that you know, anybody who is cognitively normal but has an amyloid PET scan like that will eventually become symptomatic if they, if they live long enough. So it's not just that um, uh, you, know, amylo- you, you can have a head full of amyloid without any danger of being sick. Probably you're going to get sick uh, if, you, if, you, if you've accumulated a lot, even if you're not symptomatic yet. Uh, we also... Uh, and by the way, these PET scans, at least there's a couple of compounds that are approved by the FDA uh, for, uh, uh, to aid in the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, these kind of positive PET scans uh, can indicate maybe 10 or 12 years in advance of when a person can become symptomatic. So this is a big step forward. Uh, there are also uh, a number of experimental PET methods for neurofibrillary tangles, for looking at tau aggregates. And here again, you can see the difference between a healthy control and an Alzheimer's patient and somebody in between with mild cognitive impairment. And that diagnosis comes from a behavioral analysis. So PET imaging has been helping a lot in diagnosis. Um, It's also possible to monitor uh, uh, body fluids in particular, cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, for biomarkers uh, that indicate uh, risk of becoming symptomatic for Alzheimer's disease. So in this case, if you measure the total amount of of a certain subset of beta amyloid, the total amount of tau and a chemically modified version of tau in cerebrospinal fluid plug those numbers into an equation, you can predict with about 95, 98% accuracy who will become symptomatic within a few years, within about five years. Um, now, one of, one of the most popular strategies for experimental Alzheimer's therapy is monoclonal antibodies. So these are antibodies that in in all cases so far, well, most cases anyway, are actually directed against amyloid itself. So these are antibodies that have to get injected, infused in the circulation. It takes an hour or so and can happen very frequently, every two weeks, every month or so. Uh, You get infused with these antibodies and they can, uh, you know, the whole idea is we're going to test these and see if they're efficacious. So one of the one of the ways of, of, of assessing efficacy is PET imaging. And you can see that this antibody, aducanumab, which uh, was made by actually two companies, um, Biogen, and its Jap- which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and its uh, Japanese partner, ASI, uh, they've been able to show in clinical trials that aducanumab very effectively gets rid of plaques. And in the phase one safety trials, there was even some suggestion that aducanumab could relieve symptoms as well as get rid of plaques. So that led to much larger studies. uh, And unfortunately, just a couple of months ago, mid-March, Biogen and ASI pulled the plug on their trial. And they did that because the statisticians who were looking at the data concluded that they would not meet their goals. That the goal, the ultimate goal being behavioral improvement. So here you have an antibody that you begin to give to patients once they become symptomatic. And it'll get rid of their plaques. But it doesn't help. And that just proves that getting rid of plaques is not guaranteed to help behavior. But maybe this same antibody, if used 
pre-symptomatically, maybe it would work under those circumstances. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point because I said that's a, that's a very long trial and an extremely expensive one. There's another monoclonal antibody, this one made by Eli Lilly, that was similarly pulled out of a trial a few years earlier for the same reason. It wasn't relieving symptoms. Now, interestingly, this is one of the antibodies, actually it's the major one that's being used experimentally in that Columbia study that you just heard about. But there's a big difference between that study and the study that led Eli Lilly to pull, pull the plug on this other trial. This trial was for patients who were symptomatic. The Columbia trial, they're treating people 10 years or so before they expect to become symptomatic. We're just going to have to wait and see whether this antibody or any others work. Okay, so I want to wrap up the last five or eight minutes or so by telling you about some of the things that we're doing in my lab. Um, and to put it very simply, we're trying to find out what happens at the very beginning that converts normal, healthy neurons into Alzheimer's neurons. And we use a variety of type of, of experimental systems for that. Uh, a lot of our work involves growing neurons in a Petri dish. Most of the time, we get the neurons out of the brains of mice. They could be normal or, as we say, wild-type mice. Sometimes they're from genetically engineered Alzheimer's-like mice. Sometimes they're from other strains. Um, but we also do a lot of experiments with the mice themselves and, whenever possible, with, with human specimens. And I'll show you an example of that shortly. So this is kind of what, what really got us started here. Uh, so these are mouse neurons. Um, everything that's green is, is a neuron. And the orange things that you see in some of them are nuclei. That's where the DNA is located. And without getting into any experimental details or anything like that, uh, what you need to know to understand this is that we've treated these neurons with amyloid beta oligomers. And any cell that has an orange nucleus is one that is, has been provoked by those amyloid oligomers to try to divide, which is something that mature neurons never do. And instead of dividing, they actually eventually die. And this type of death following reentry into the cell cycle uh, may be responsible for as much as 90% of the neuron death that happens in Alzheimer's disease. We didn't discover this. Other labs showed it first. But what really got us started was here. Because these, came, these neurons came from mice that were genetically engineered in such a way that they lost their genes for tau. They make no tau. And those same amyloid oligomers that cause normal neurons with tau to die don't have any such effect on neurons that don't have tau. Unless you use additional molecular biology tricks to re-express tau in these cells, in which case they follow the same fate as the normal neurons. So that proves that the cell death properties of amyloid works by some mechanism that requires tau. And we see the same thing in vivo. So these are actually brain sections, kind of similar to what I showed you at the beginning uh, of, of plaques and tangles. Um, but these HAPPJ20 mice are, uh, have been genetically engineered to mimic human Alzheimer's disease. And by the time they're six months old, their brains are full of plaques. And they have pretty substantial learning and memory deficits at that age. Uh, and they have lots of cells that are back in the cell cycle. So this is a, a, a slightly different kind of experiment than what I showed you in the previous one. But what you need to know, again, is if they have orange or red nuclei, they're back in the cell cycle. And they're probably going to die eventually because of that. Okay? But if you take these same mice and breed them with mice that don't have any tau. At six months of age, they still have lots of plaques. But 
they don't have any cells that are back, neurons that are back in the cell cycle and are therefore destined to die. Interestingly, uh, Eric Roberson, who was a, a, a professor at University of Alabama at Birmingham and collaborated with us for this work, showed a few years earlier in his own work that these J20 mice that don't have tau, even though their brains are full of plaques, are behaviorally normal. So the tau requirement for amyloid toxicity is not just at the level of putting neurons back into the cell cycle, but also something at the synaptic level. These neurons are not suffering synapse damage, even though they have lots of amyloids surrounding them, and they don't have the damage because they don't have tau. So to make a long, long story short, this is a summary of years and years of work. Uh, this represents uh, what we, most of what we now know about the pathway that leads from initial exposure of amyloid oligomers to neuron death by this neuronal cell cycle reentry. And if you follow all of the arrows uh, away from amyloid oligomers, you'll see that they eventually all pass through tau. And that's the take-home message, that, that amyloid works, amyloid toxicity depends on tau. And just as importantly, at least when we grow neurons in culture, and sometimes we use human neurons, by the way. Don't be alarmed by that. We don't grab them out of human brain. Uh, they're actually... Uh, uh, they originate as skin cells, which can be easily taken from patients, uh, and then by little molecular biology trickery and the Petri dishes, we can get them to convert from skin cells into neurons. In either case, within hours after exposing these neurons to amyloid oligomers, they're back in the cell cycle and on their way to dying. And so here we have a process that accounts for most neuron death in Alzheimer's disease. It's initiated by amyloid, and it proceeds by a tau-dependent mechanism completely independently of the incorporation of amyloid and tau into plaques and tangles. So when I said at the beginning that it's the oligomers that are the bad guys, not the plaques and tangles, uh, I was really talking about evidence like this. So this is just an example, uh, without getting into detail, of how we do use human specimens sometimes, not to do experiments with, but just to do what I refer to as molecular bird watching, so that we can see if the kinds of molecular changes that we detect in cultured mouse or human neurons actually occur inside the human brain in Alzheimer's patients as well. And the answer so far for everything that we've had an opportunity to interrogate like that is yes. So as a result of everything that I showed you, the mantra in the lab, and this is, actually it's not the title of this talk, it's the title of similar talks that I give sometimes, is that amyloid is the trigger and tau is the bullet. It's tau that's doing the damage. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that happens in the next two or three minutes. Uh, when I tell you about um, uh, a paper that my former grad student, uh, Aaron Kodis, published as first author just about a year ago in Alzheimer's and Dementia, which is the official journal of the Alzheimer's Association. And we're very, very excited about this work. So what Aaron did was to contribute the data for this little part of our map about how cell cycle reentry occurs. And um, what I want to point out is this, this thing called the NMDA receptor. So this is something that's found in synapses on the postsynaptic cell. It's a, it, it stands for uh, uh, NM, NMDA receptor, okay? So it, it, it serves as a receptor for neurotransmitters that are little chemicals that are released from the presynaptic cell and are sensed by these receptors on the postsynaptic cell. And the way this receptor works is when the neurotransmitter hits the receptor, the receptor is basically a channel that opens and lets a little bit of calcium enter the neuron, 
And then that calcium causes the neuron to fire, to send, to generate what we call an action potential, and then communicate that it's firing to other neurons that it's connected to. This is all normal and healthy. But in Alzheimer's disease, these, these receptors get damaged and they stay open for too long, too much calcium gets in, and that excess calcium can damage synapses, it can destroy synapses, and if there's too much calcium, it can actually kill the cell within minutes. Okay? So, way to look at this is that amyloid oligomers cause excess calcium to enter cells. And we know from a lot of experiments that we've done that this causes good tau to convert into bad tau. And maybe one way to think of it is that normal tau uh, it, it has a, a, is folded in such a way that it's sort of like a hairpin or a paper clip. So one end of the molecule and the other end of the molecule fold in such a way that they're very close to each other. Okay, this is good tau. But when this excess calcium enters cells, and a bunch of other things happen also as a result of, of the amyloid exposure, the tau unfolds. And that's what makes tau become toxic. So now we've got good tau becoming bad tau, and it's that bad tau which impairs and kills synapses and can cause neuron death either directly or by this indirect pathway. And these two things together account for memory loss and cognitive failure. And as the neuron death reaches a certain critical point, it will eventually cause the life of the patient. Okay. Well, Memento or Numendo, which is its brand name blocks this very first step. And so, you know, if, if, if I had a stack of dominoes lined up here and all I had to do was push the first one and then they would all fall down, if you wanted to prevent all, the, all of the uh, dominoes from falling, the best way to do it would be to interrupt the process at the very beginning. And so, whereas Mementin or Nemenda has been used traditionally for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Erin uh, has found that Namenda can block cell cycle reentry, not only in cultured neurons, but also in transgenic mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. And so we want to know, can Namenda prevent Alzheimer's disease if we give it to patients early enough? And that would involve prophylactic treatment beginning long before symptoms. So who are the patients going to be? Well, um, there are basically a couple of good choices. Um, one is patients like those in Colombia who have mutations, disease-causing mutations, in any one of these three genes. Um, we're looking for such families. We actually have our eyes on one in Uruguay. I don't know if it's going to come to pass, but uh, but this is a lengthy process. Um, another thing is, is apolipoprotein E, or uh, the, the epsilon-4 allele, or ApoE4 for short. So everybody in the room has two copies of the ApoE gene. You got one from your mother, one from your father. Uh, there are three slightly different versions of the gene that are common in humans. They're called ApoE2, 3, and 4. And uh, there is an ApoE1, but not in humans. Uh, and all other things being equal, if you have one copy of ApoE4, your risk of becoming symptomatic for Alzheimer's disease eventually is maybe fivefold higher than it would be otherwise, 10 or 20-fold higher if you have two copies. So ApoE4 is a very good biomarker. So a second type of trial would be to look for people who are ApoE4 positive and maybe have a history of Alzheimer's disease in the family. Half of Alzheimer's patients are ApoE4 positive. And it's so common, this, this variant of the gene is so common, 25% of people worldwide have at least one copy. Although there is quite a bit of variability among ethnic groups. So we have a number of different choices. Um, uh, familial Alzheimer's disease patients, ApoE4 carriers. Uh, down syndrome patients is, a, is, is another possibility. I'm, I, I, I'll, I'm just going to skip that, though, for the moment. It, it requires a lengthy explanation, and we're running out of time. 
So the, the point is that a definitive trial for this would take many years. But we could be, if we could, if we could raise the money to do this, and I think it's going to be somewhere between 10 and $50 million to do it properly, um, uh, we could begin testing right away. We don't have to go through safety trials because this drug is already proven to be safe, FDA approved. So, in fact, we have, um, a, we have a, a temporary use patent to try to repurpose uh, Nemender, Mementin, uh, for treating, for, for prevention rather than cure of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, that's kind of where things stand right now. It may still take a few years before we figure out exactly how to do this trial and raise the money for it, but hopefully we will get to that point. And that's all I want to say, uh, except that there's all sorts of uh, people from my lab, past, past and present, uh, who've been involved in this work. We have collaborators all over the world, uh, and uh, fortunately, lots of uh, funding support from a variety of agencies. So I talked a little bit longer than I, than I thought I would, but I'd be very happy to answer any questions you may have now. into the podcast. Would like to ask a question? Hi, you mentioned the similarities between Alzheimer's and uh, CWD and uh, mad cow disease. Um, have any animal trials been uh, performed, drug trials, given that, you know, captive uh, cervid populations in Midwestern states, stuff like that? You mean drug trials for those diseases? Yeah, given the similarities in the shorter lifespan, so if you saw any premonitory signs. I, I'm not aware of any drug trials for those diseases, but that doesn't mean they're not underway or haven't been. Do you think the amount of calcium one takes has something to do with the amount of calcium that goes into Okay, so the que- if you couldn't hear, the question is, 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 I'll paraphrase, is taking calcium, like calcium pills, is that dangerous? Is that what you're asking? I think the answer is no. The, the concentration of calcium outside of cells is like 1,000 to 10,000-fold higher than inside cells. And, uh, you know, taking calcium pills may be really good for protecting bone health, but there's, there's not one shred of evidence that I'm aware of that it represents a risk factor for for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, There have been some recent reports about gingivitis germs triggering Alzheimer's. Is that true? That's a great question. Um, So it's even a little broader than that. There's a a microbial hypothesis for Alzheimer's disease. And that extends not just to gingivitis, which is a gum disease, but to any kind of bacterial infection or, or viral infection that may occur in the brain. So there's been some very interesting stuff done on this. And, and to make a long story short, there's evidence that uh, some of these microbes can actually provoke the formation of amyloid filaments. And furthermore, that those amyloid filaments represent a sort of primitive but very efficient immune response to these microbial or viral insults. So in other words, um, uh, you know, maybe the A-beta peptides, the amyloid peptides, maybe they're part of what we call the innate immune system. And that's pretty cool stuff. But to say that, the, that, that, that that's a cause, that the, the ability of these microbes to cause amyloid filaments to form could be a cause of Alzheimer's disease, in my opinion, is, is a very far stretch for which there's really no good evidence. Uh, and furthermore, it's working in the wrong way. I mean, if you, if you believe what I just told you, uh, that, that uh, um, taking oligomers and letting them grow bigger to become filaments is good, then as far as Alzheimer's is concerned, the ability of these microbes to cause amyloid filaments to grow should be protective rather than than dangerous in terms of Alzheimer's disease. However, it's always the possibility that that, that I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, You talk about uh, the need for um, 
testing drugs on early on prior to mild cognitive impairment diagnosis. And you talk about cerebral spinal fluid test as a possibility, but how how do uh, you how do you generate? How do you find these people? How do you say, oh, this is a kind of a treatment that we should be okay, so generating I'm, much more frequently than we do today? And there are these millions of people that should be getting this kind of treatment. So but you're you're basically asking, how do we find who's at risk? Yeah, well, well, there's a lot of things. Okay, first of all. Um, a history of a lot of Alzheimer's disease in the family, but not at young ages, but you know, typical elderly. Uh, more Alzheimer's than your typical family. That would be one. Um, anybody here uh, had their uh, DNA sequenced by 23andMe or uh, Ancestry.com? Okay, uh, those services, you know, for about 100 bucks, uh, can tell you, in fact, they routinely tell you whether you're APOE4 positive or not. And even if you don't want to invest that $100 and you go to your, your doctor and ask them to do it, your insurance company probably won't pay, pay for it, but it's still not expensive. You know, if, you have, if, if you're worried about it, blow 100 bucks, find out uh, if, if, if you're APOE4 positive. Um, if you've had a series of head injuries and you're worried about it, you know, that's another sign but otherwise, if you, you know, the PET imaging is very expensive and, and, and kind of exotic, and not a lot of hospitals can do that. Um, that's more like of, of, a, of, a, of a secondary, albeit a very powerful <coughs> method. The cerebrospinal fluid, uh, what I didn't say is requires a spinal tap. Anybody here ever had a spinal tap? Lucky. Um, yeah, in, in North America, in the U.S. and Canada, it's considered a very invasive procedure that should be avoided unless absolutely necessary. In Europe, it's considered like taking blood. I don't know why the difference, but, uh, uh, you know, even, even, even if European physicians practice this very, very safely, it's still risk, and, you know, nobody wants a needle stuck into their spine. Um, there are some recent developments that may make it possible to use blood instead of cerebrospinal fluid to look for these biomarkers. Uh, we've been able, for a long time, to be able to, t to detect these things in blood, but, at, but they're at much, much lower levels, and we can barely detect them. And, and what we really need is much better sensitivity. And within the last couple of years, there have been methods uh, to increase the sensitivity of measuring these things in blood. Uh, dramatically. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, maybe in a year or two we'll be able to use blood routinely instead of cerebrospinal fluid to help aid analysis. Hi, what do you make of the recent research tying Alzheimer's, or calling Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes and its relationship to insulin resistance? And if it is, can it be addressed with... Um, lifestyle changes, and if not, what do you attribute, uh, I mean, can we tie it in with the obesity crisis, or what, what do you attribute the increase in uh, Alzheimer's disease to, if not to lifestyle? Yeah, so type 2 diabetes is a major risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, so type 2 diabetes refers to insulin resistance. You have insulin, but your body doesn't use it very efficiently. Turns out that the Alzheimer's brain is like that, irrespective of whether or not the patient has systemic type 2 diabetes. And so 10 or 12 years ago, that led to some researchers referring to Alzheimer's as brain-specific or type 3 diabetes. The term has not really caught on, mainly because experts in the metabolism field don't like it, but that's really a semantic issue, not a scientific argument. So there was a lot of uh, debate about whether the insulin resistance in neurons uh, is just sort of a side effect, you know, one of many things that happens, or is it really near the root cause of the symptoms? And the work that we've done here in my lab the last couple of years, I think, answers that question. It's near the root cause of the symptoms. So you'll notice that amyloid oligomers, see this, this red arrow that actually doesn't end in an arrow, it ends bluntly. That means inhibition. 
So uh, a, uh, a Brazilian group of scientists, uh, in collaboration with a couple of Americans and Canadians, published a beautiful paper a few years ago showing that uh, amyloid oligomers are the cause of the insulin resistance of neurons. Now, in the experiments we do, we use, the neurons are perfectly sensitive to, neur to, to insulin. And we found that we can block the ability of amyloid oligomers to cause cell cycle reentry simply by adding extra insulin to the medium in which they're growing. And putting this all together, what it means is, but remember, in, in, in a human Alzheimer's patient, that's not going to work because those neurons won't respond to insulin. So the ability of amyloid, we've concluded that the ability of amyloid oligomers to dampen insulin signaling in neurons unleashes the further toxic potential of those same oligomers to drive cell cycle reentry and neuron death. So that's why we think it's actually uh, a, major, a major cause. Now, to answer the second part of your question, you know, what can we do to help? Well, anything that you can do in terms of lifestyle to reduce your risk of developing type 2 diabetes will simultaneously reduce your risk of becoming symptomatic for Alzheimer's disease. What does that mean in practice? Well, you know, if you love bacon double cheeseburgers and french fries, you know, Enjoy them once in a while, but don't make that your diet, okay? Uh, strive for a more Mediterranean diet. Uh, make sure you eat plenty of fruits and vegetables and grains. Uh, go easy on the carbohydrates. Uh, physical exercise is the, is, is the only thing so far that's been statistically proven as a lifestyle uh, as a lifestyle thing to provide some measurable protection against Alzheimer's disease. Exercise your brain as well, because that'll help. Okay. And we have a, pre we have a presentation coming in at, at, uh, pretty soon. So Dr. Bloom, I'm sure, can take some questions as he's leaving. I'm sorry. But thank you, Dr. Bloom. Let's give him a hand. On behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, we have a gift for you, and we thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, all of you who came in from the rain, and um, I hope you enjoyed it and learned something, and come again. We have uh, more lectures this afternoon. Thank you.